Psalm 84, and uh, just a very beautiful psalm. And this is where we're going to hang for the next four uh, Sundays in the 84th Psalm. We're going to spend four weeks here. And let's just, I'm going to read through the whole psalm. We're only going to deal with the first four verses this morning, but I want to read it all to you. Uh, These are the words of the psalmist. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, it even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go forth from strength to strength. And each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer, the psalmist says. Give ear, O God of Jacob. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory and no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Holy Spirit, we are so grateful for your presence here today. Thankful, Lord, that you are our anchor through every storm and every difficult trial. As we lay hold of you, you lay hold of us. The promise of your word is, draw nigh to me and I will draw nigh unto you. And I'm so thankful for that. And Lord, today we give ourselves uh, to the study of your word and particularly this 84th Psalm that has such rich implications for your people today. Ask God that you would help me to speak not even one single word of my own. Help me to, to declare your word, to speak your word. I pray God for the grace gift of your anointing. And it is indeed a grace gift. It's not something that any man or any woman could earn or deserve but it's something, God, that you give because you love us. And I pray, Lord, that you would anoint me to be able to speak your word today in a way that would communicate the eternal truth of how wonderful and glorious it is to live and walk in your presence. Ask, God, that you would speak to our hearts, challenge us, supernaturally arrest the attention of everyone in this room for these moments that we share together today. And I pray this and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you turn around and uh, wave at someone or fist bump them or greet them in some safe way. And um, then you may be seated. You may be seated this morning. So over the next uh, four Sundays, we are going to, under this theme, I would rather be a doorkeeper. Um, we are going to unpack some of the really rich truths of Psalm 84. One of the great uh, preachers of the 19th century, 
Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote this about many of the Psalms. He says, speaking of the 84th, this sacred ode is one of the choicest of the collection of Psalms. It has a mild radiance about it, entitling it to be called the pearl of the Psalms. Because on the right, if the 23rd is the most popular, the 103rd the most joyful, the 119th the most experimental, the 51st the most plaintive, this is one of the most sweet of the Psalms of Peace. So in the mind of Spurgeon, uh, this 84th Psalm ranked way up there as one of the great Psalms and one of the Psalms that had some of the richest, most powerful and profound implications for us. Let me give you a little bit of the context of Psalm 84. It was a common thing for the Jews to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, for most Jews, three times a year, the Passover being one of those, the Feast of Tabernacles being a second, the Feast of Booze or the Feast Booths, or somebody thought I said booze last night, not booze, the Feast of Booths um, or Pentecost was the third. And they would travel wherever they were at in Judea or Galilee. They would travel to Jerusalem. They would make a pilgrimage to the tabernacle or the temple where they would gather to worship. That's kind of the sense that you get with David in Psalm 122 when he says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. So David was always looking forward to those moments when people would make their way to Jerusalem. They would pilgrimage there and they would worship together. Along the way, families would journey together. A family of five would leave and they would get to the next community. A family of seven would join them and the pack would get larger and larger and they would, they would rest at kind of some of the sunny places and then they would sing songs on their way there. And everyone was traveling from all these different directions. They were on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year. They would sing songs and often they would sing psalms. Uh, these psalms that they would sing on their way to Jerusalem were known as the Psalms of Ascent. That is, as they ascended toward the mountain in Jerusalem where the tabernacle was and ultimately where the temple was, they would sing these Psalms of Ascent. One example is in Psalm 24, we read these words. This is what they would sing. The group would sing as they got closer to Jerusalem. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who will stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who's not sworn deceitfully nor lifted up his soul into vanity. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Later in that psalm, they would sing these words, lift up your heads, O you gates. They'd be speaking to the gates of Jerusalem and be lifted up, you everlasting or ancient doors, so that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He is the King of glory. And so they would sing these psalms of ascent as they made their way to Jerusalem. So Psalm 84 is a song that would easily be sung by someone who might have been excluded from that opportunity to go to the tabernacle. For whatever reason, maybe because of uncleanness, because of their own sin or their sickness, maybe because they just simply could not make travel accommodations 
For whatever reason, there were some that had to stay home and they wouldn't be able to go. And this would be the song that they would sing. Oh, how lovely are your tabernacles, O God. They would long to be there, but be unable to actually go and together. So it is the expression of a mourning heart that is unable to experience the presence of God that meets them as they gather together corporately in the tabernacle or later in the temple. So as we think about how we can make application from this 84th Psalm to our lives, we recognize that ultimately this Psalm, Psalm 84, is about the experience of God's presence. What it feels like to be in the presence of God, but even more specifically, that sense of God's presence that we get when we are corporately gathered. What we feel and what we know and what we experience when God's people come together and together they worship Him. The experience of God's presence in the corporate gathering is something that is crucial. Now let me just pause for a moment and say David, one of the, the one who wrote many of the Psalms, he did not write the 84th, but he wrote many of them. David understood that God was everywhere. The big theological term is omnipresence. He understood that God was omnipresent. That's why David wrote in Psalm uh, 139, where can I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So David knew that God's presence was everywhere. And yet he knew there was something, listen to me, he knew that there was something unique beyond just God being everywhere. He knew there was something unique about the presence of God that we feel when we're gathered together. The presence of God that we experience when God's people come for the same purpose and they worship. There was something different about that for David than just being aware that God was always with him. The writer of Hebrews mentions it in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, the writer of Hebrews knew what David knew. God's everywhere. We can feel his presence all by ourselves, but there is something unique and something special about the gathering of God's people and the presence of God that we feel and experience when we are gathered together to worship Him. Let me just pause and say for just a moment, and I recognize this is not possible for everyone. And certainly this pandemic has been a challenge to this very piece of theology, and, and I know that there are some that simply cannot get out, but this is one of the reasons that we have worked really hard to try to stay open, because we believe in this theological truth that there is something powerful about the gathering of God's people to worship together in his presence. And so we, we are committed to that whenever possible. And that's what the psalmist is talking about here. So let's look for just a few moments at what this psalm teaches us about the presence of God, specifically as it is manifest in the corporate gathering. Just four simple truths. These are not I'm not going to wow you at all today. This is just very simple stuff. But number one, the experience of God's presence has no earthly comparison. There's nothing like it. 
There's nothing like being in the presence of God, especially when you're in the presence of God with other people and you experience his presence together. That's why the psalmist said this, how lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. How lovely. What was it that, that made it so lovely that the psalmist would say there is just something incredibly unique, something powerfully beautiful, something lovely about the gathering of God's people in the tabernacle? Why was that so lovely? Why was that so unique? Why is it still so special today? The psalmist would argue that the gathering of God's people together in the tabernacle provided a uniqueness that has no earthly comparison. First of all, it provides a uniqueness that no other experience could possibly offer to us. Let me uh, walk down a quick little theological trail very quickly. Just give me 90 seconds with this. We're saved as individuals. We're born again, every one of us. You can't ride the coattails of someone else. Jesus taught that we need to be born again. One of the things that I say often, however, is that while it's important for us to teach little Johnny in Children's Church that he needs to ask Jesus to come into his heart and be his personal Lord and Savior, there is something wrong when Johnny is 55 or 75 or 85 and he still thinks that Jesus is his personal Lord and Savior as if no one else matters. We're saved as individuals, but we are not saved to remain individuals. We are saved to be a part of the body. We are saved to be a part of the corporate people of God. When God brought Israel out of Egypt after 400 years plus of bondage, he gathered them together at Sinai. And they were corporately there when God spoke to them as a corporate people. When Moses was about to die, he regathered the people and he spoke to them as a corporate body. And throughout Israel's history, time and time again, the leaders would call a sacred assembly because they knew that it was important. They were a people. They were a body that needed to gather together. The very word church in the New Testament, the Greek word is ecclesia. And ecclesia means the called out ones who have been called out together. They've not just been called out of something, they've been called out to gather together. It's the assembly. That's literally what the word means. And Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia, I'll build my church. The ones who have been called out to be together as the body of Christ. And so the gathering of the church is crucial for several reasons. First of all, the gathering of the church makes us visible to ourselves. That may sound funny, but let me elaborate on that for just a moment. The gathering of us together makes us visible to ourselves. I think sometimes we forget what God has done and, and what this body really is. And I'm not talking about just glad tidings. I'm talking about the body of Christ. Theologian Everett Ferguson put it this way. It's really a powerful statement. In assembly, the church becomes conscious of itself. It confesses itself to be a distinct entity, shows itself to be what it is, a community, a people gathered by the grace of God, dependent on him and honoring him. The assembly allows the church to emerge in its true nature. You see, when we gather together, this is what God intends. He intends for the church to gather together to emerge as who he has called it to be. Think about what happens 
when the church is gathered. We're made visible to ourselves because as we worship, we see the tears of the widowed spouse. As she stands there among us and with the rest of us, she sings, it is well with my soul. As we gather together, we see the new convert. We, we look around and we see the new convert that has pulled in seven or nine or 12 of her own friends, like the Samaritan woman who says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. This is the Christ, the Messiah. And as we gather together, we see that God is working in the lives of other people. We see the youngest believer who is growing in their faith, one of the most thrilling things for me, and you may, this may just be a preacher thing, but when I'm standing on the front row and I kind of look over my shoulder and I see a person who is new in their faith and they are maybe lifting their hands or they're engaged in worship and I see that, that God is working in their lives and they're experiencing his presence. You don't experience that if everybody's on their own, but we see ourselves for who we are. The true body emerges as we worship together. We are able to see people committed to one another helping one another through cancer, helping one another through a divorce or brokenness or loss. We can do that. Our true selves emerge when we experience the uniqueness of being the gathered together people. Those same people going through divorce or miscarriage or infertility or the loss of a loved one and they're all singing the same songs and they're all praising the same God. They all have their own brokenness but together we are worshiping and praising the same God and encouraging one another. Where else can that be experienced? There's no earthly comparison to that experience of the gathered people of God seeing the body of Christ emerge. The gathering of the church also makes us visible to a broken world. Black and white, young and old, male and female, wealthy and poor, educated and not, sick and healthy, all standing together and singing the praises of the God who redeemed them, says to a world, this is a place where it doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, this is a place where all are welcome and the presence of God is here. It makes us visible. I pray that it makes us visible to a broken world. Where else can that happen? Where else could such a bizarre group of people not that you're bizarre or that I'm bizarre, but where else could such a bizarre group of people gather together? That doesn't happen in the Kiwanians or the JCs. It happens when the people of God, all who have been redeemed, all who have been put at the same level because of the cross, gather together and worship. It allows the uniqueness of the gathering, allows for the church to become visible to a broken world. And thirdly, the gathering of the church makes possible experiences that can be known nowhere else. Let me just give you two or three of those, the power of agreement in prayer. Jesus said, again, I say, if two of you agree on earth as to touching anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. That doesn't just happen in my prayer closet by myself. It happens when the people of God gather together. What about the the enthroning of God's presence that happens when we are corporately gathered together. Listen to what the psalmist wrote. Yet you are holy, you are enthroned in the praises of Israel. Listen, I don't even know how this works, but there is something really powerful 
when God's people praise together, when they worship together, that God sits enthroned. He inhabits the praise of his people. Some powerful manifestation happens when all of God's people lay down their differences. They lay down their weeks and they worship the one who is deserving. God inhabits, he enthrones those praises. That can happen nowhere else. The body of Christ is edified. Again, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but encouraging one another even more as you see the day approaching. Look at me for just a moment. There is no earthly comparison to the gathering of God's people. There is no earthly comparison to what happens when God's people who love him, who have been redeemed, who have stories. Some who have known Jesus since they were five years old. Some who found Jesus last week. Some who the worst thing they ever did was steal a cookie out of the cookie jar. And some who have committed grievous sins, but all in need of the grace of God, worshiping him together. There is no earthly comparison. Say amen if you believe that. Secondly, an appetite for God's presence brings incomparable satisfaction. Listen again to what the psalmist says, my soul longs and even faints for the courts of the Lord, my heart and my flesh. Look at this, my soul, my heart, my flesh, they cry out for the living God. The longing of the psalmist, soul, his heart, his flesh, they all pine for God's presence as it is manifest in the corporate worship. There's a longing for that. My soul even faints, the psalmist said. David said in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after thee, O God. This verse in Psalm 84 speaks beyond just the theological truth of the corporate gathering and to the individual satisfaction that comes when we experience the presence of God. Look at this, look at this on the screen. The courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh, they long for the courts of the Lord. Let me give you just a quick little uh, lesson about the tabernacle and the temple. There were three courts in the tabernacle and the temple. The first was the outer court or the Gentile court. The only people, the, the Gentiles could not go beyond this, this outer court. You remember the story in the New Testament when um, Jesus went into the temple and he started turning tables over. He was ticked off when he drove out the money changers and those who were selling uh, sacrifices. You remember what Jesus said? He said, my, it is written, my father's house shall be a house of prayer to all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. Why was Jesus so angry? Because they had set up shop in the Gentile courts. That was as close as the Gentiles could get to the presence of God back then. They couldn't get any closer. The only place they were allowed was the Gentile court, and they had tables set up, so there was no place for the Gentiles to go and experience the presence of God or to pray. They couldn't get in. So Jesus was angry because this was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have left the Gentiles out. They're no longer welcome. So now the psalmist says, my heart and my flesh and my soul, they long for the courts of the Lord. That would begin with the Gentile courts. 
that outsider, that one that doesn't yet know Jesus, that one that doesn't yet have an experience with Christ, but is coming in. There's something really exciting about seeing a seeker walk in. They don't yet know Jesus. And so they're just kind of in the Gentile court. They're kind of on the outside. But when they feel the presence of God, when they experience the tugging of the Holy Spirit, when the word is preached, and not because the preacher is articulate, sometimes he's not, but because the Holy Spirit can take the word and touch their hearts. Something about seeing that person be drawn in. The psalmist says, my, my heart, my flesh, my soul longs for the courts of the Lord. And then there's the inner courts. And the inner court was where the brazen labor, the brass washing basin and with a brazen altar the place where a person was cleansed of their sins they were washed clean it was in that inner court where those pieces of furniture would be stationed it's amazing to feel i hope you feel this when we worship we spend five minutes of prayer we come in from a a difficult world and our spiritual feet are a little dusty because we've been walking all week in a in a difficult world and we just experience the cleansing of God. Isn't that a good feeling when you just begin to worship and maybe tears run down your cheeks and, and you just feel the cleansing that comes from God. That's the inner court. And then there is the Holy of Holies. When you really, when you really walk in and you experience that closeness and that intimacy, when God breaks you and when nothing else matters, that's what the psalmist is longing for. My heart and my soul and my flesh. They long for the courts of the Lord to see other people welcome in, to know that I'm cleansed, and to feel the intimacy that I can have with Christ. The psalmist had a holy appetite for the presence of God and to be in the house of God. Can I tell you that as a pastor of 35 years, I'm saddened that we've kind of lost that appetite today. I know people like to say, well, the church isn't a building. It's not. It's not a building, but there is something special and unique about the gathering of God's people. If a building wasn't important, God would not have instructed Solomon to build an elaborate temple where the people could gather together. And yes, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but we're still called out ones together. But it seems that the American church, because we've been so blessed and so prosperous and so many other things to do, we've lost that longing for the house of God, the gathering of the corporate people of God. We've lost that priority. We've become falsely satisfied with the things of the world, but listen to me, look at me for just a moment. Nothing will ever satisfy you like the presence of God. To be enraptured in his presence, especially as you're gathered with other believers. An appetite for God's presence brings incomparable satisfaction. Look at what Spurgeon said. I'm just on a Spurgeon kick lately. I just think he's got some great quotes. Some need to be whipped to church while here the psalmist is crying for it. He needed no clatter of bells from the belfry to ring him in. He carried his own bell in his bosom. Holy appetite is a better call to worship than a full chime. Can I just tell you that every week I've been praying since I read this quote, I've been praying for our congregation that we would have a holy appetite for the presence of God, that we would long to be here and to experience God's presence. Number three, number three, the provision of God's presence brings a measurable reward. Look again at what the psalmist says in verse three. Even the sparrow has found a home, 
and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. The presence of God, listen, when properly stewarded by the people of God, is a welcoming presence. When we steward what we have here, listen, I, I want to be, let me be really pastoral for just a moment. We can blow what God has given us, all right? We can, we can mess it up. God has given us a unique opportunity to gather together and to worship and to enjoy his presence, but we have to steward that presence well. And to properly steward the presence of God is to make certain that this experience that we have is not us for and no more. But instead, it is a welcoming place for other people, no matter where they've been, no matter how you know them in the community, no matter what you've seen them do, this needs to be a welcoming presence, place for all together. Notice what the psalmist says, even the sparrow and the swallow, they were the cheapest birds. They were the most unclean birds. They were the birds. Remember, Jesus said, I even know when a sparrow falls. They were insignificant, but the psalmist says even the swallow and the sparrow are welcome in the courts of the Lord. Even they can find a place in the house of God. The gathering of God's people is not for the spiritually elite. It's not only for those who have experience or familiarity. It's not only for those who have lived clean lives as we may judge them. It's a place where all may find their home. Well, somebody say amen if you believe that. There needs to be a welcoming sense of God's presence. We want everyone to experience the presence of God. The Holy Spirit can work on people's lives. That's not our job. Our job is to welcome them into the presence of God and allow Him to minister to them. Even a sense that the presence of God is manifest through the gathered people of God becomes a safe and a nurturing place like no other, how our culture desperately needs this. Can I just talk to parents and grandparents for just a moment? I am a, not a fan of the, uh, um, you're not gonna be surprised, I'm not a fan of the um, safe place mentality that our culture has developed. I don't think college students need to go somewhere and cry if they've had a bad day. I think, I'll just tell you, that's ridiculous, all right? I'll just tell you that. <laughs> However, however, I do think that God's people need to recognize how nurturing the house of God, how safe the gathering of the people of God can be for them and for their children and for their grandchildren. One of the benefits of being a pastor is to watch your kids grow up in church. And um, we built several buildings, not only here, but in Winchester, Morocco. And I have pictures of me laying on the floor with blueprints and Kyle and Kayla laying on the floor on their stomachs with me. We had, none of us had any idea what we're looking at, but it was a, it was a photo op, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, um, and, and I, I've loved how my kids have always been comfortable in the church. They, they just, this feels right to them. I've loved to watch my grandkids. Um, what I started to say is now they're building in Dunkirk, and Kyle's taking his kids up, and they're walking around the building, and they're looking, and I love how comfortable they are in the house of God. There's something powerful about that. It's a difficult world. And I'm not one who says we need to cower and not expose ourselves to the world. We can't win a world if we're not exposed to them. But may I encourage you to encourage your children and your grandchildren to make friends in the house of God. To make friends, to nurture relationships among the people of God. 
You want them to marry someone who loves Jesus. You want them to marry someone who is serving God. So encourage that. It can be a place where they can be welcomed and they can be safe and they can experience those who share that faith with them. This can be a place where they find that they are so very comfortable. And thirdly, it's a place where hearts are encouraged not to give up, but to press on. Philip Crosby in his book, March Until They Die, tells of a forced march of American and European soldiers in Korea. In November of 1950, the North Koreans were being pushed back north but they were taking with them Americans and Europeans that they had captured as prisoners of war. It was a very terrible march. It was a difficult march through difficult terrain. Some days they were forced to go as much as 20 miles a day, though they were emaciated, hungry, and physically suffering. And soldiers that could not keep up, Crosby said we would hear shots ring because they had been executed. Philip Crosby and his friends, as they passed close to those GIs who were having a hard time keeping up, would say slowly in a whisper so as not to be heard, God is near to us in this dark hour. His love is real. His mercy is real. His forgiveness is real. His reward is waiting for us. You don't know who you may sit next to on Sunday morning or who you may pray with at the altar or who you may greet in the lobby. The gathering of God's people is a chance for you to say to someone who is weary and tired and struggling to keep on, keep it on, God is real. His love is real. His mercy is real. And his reward is awaiting us. That's the power of the collective gathering immeasurable reward. And number four, and I'm done, the pursuit of God's presence must become a lifestyle rather than just an event. Look again at the psalmist, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Ultimately, God wants us to learn to abide in his presence, doesn't he? To dwell, not just to get in and then get out, God wants us to experience when we gather his presence so richly that we leave saying, I want to walk in that. I want to abide in that. I want to dwell in the secret place of the Most High. One of the most powerful things about the corporate gathering is that people experience the presence of God in such a way it makes them hungry for that all the time. And God has made that possible. We cannot just walk in and out. We can learn to dwell in his presence. A.W. Tozer says, what I am anxious to see in Christian believers is a beautiful paradox. I'm going to see in them the joy of finding God while at the same time they are blessedly pursuing him. I want to see in them the great joy of having God, yet always wanting him. I pray that's what happens for us. We experience God, we experience him, we have him but we always want him more. That's why Paul said, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Would you stand with me this morning, please? I want to just close with some scripture and one final quote. Hold steady if you can. It's still pretty early. Let me read to you just some really beautiful words from two Psalms. 
I don't read them slow. There's something about the Psalms that are so human and so powerful. This is a Psalm of David. Let me ask you this question before I read it. Do you long for God's presence? Do you long to experience his presence in the corporate gathering? Here's what David said. Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and a thirsty land where there is no water. So I looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise thee. Thus will I bless thee. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. My mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches because you've been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. David said, I was hungry, I was thirsty, and I asked to see you in the sanctuary and I experienced your glory. So at home at night when I'm laying on my bed and I'm meditating on you, I'm experiencing your presence. It's how powerful the corporate gathering can be. It makes us long for him. And then another Psalm, and this will be the end, Psalm 90. Written actually by Moses. Heard my grandkids on a video last night. This is their memory verse this week. And I heard them at different levels because they're different ages quote this, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He goes on to say in verse 4, God, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday, which is past, like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. Those days are like sleep. In the morning, they're like grass, which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes. In the evening, it's cut down and withers. Moses is very honest. We've been consumed by your anger. There's some bad news here. There's some harshness. By your wrath, he says, we are terrified. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. All of our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they're 80, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow. We're soon cut off and we fly away. Look at the wisdom of Moses in verse 12 light of that, teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And look at his prayer in verse 14. Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Simon Tigwell, Tugwell, excuse me, in the Beatitudes, I want you to listen really closely. It is the desire for God, which is the most fundamental appetite of all. And it is an appetite that we can never eliminate. We may seek to disown it, 
but it will not go away. If we deny it is there, we shall in fact only divert it to some other objects or range of objects. And that will mean that we invest in some creature or creatures with the full burden of our need for God. A burden which no creature can carry. Let me just tell you what you're hungry for is the presence of God. What you have an appetite for, you may not know it, but it's the presence of Jesus. That's the only thing that'll really satisfy, and that's why many people go from one thing to another because they're trying to deny the fact that that appetite exists. But the only thing that will ever satisfy that appetite is the presence of Jesus. And until you get there, you'll just divert that appetite that is stamped on you to something else and someone else and no one can ever satisfy like he does. I want you to bow your heads with me if you would for a moment. Maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor Kevin, that's me. I have, I've looked for something else to satisfy me and nothing else has. I want to give my life to Jesus today. I want to surrender my life to him because I know only he will satisfy. I want to commit my life to him that's you today, would you just slip up a hand? I'd love to pray with you right where you're at. Anyone in this room that would say, pray with me this morning. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Anyone else in this place? Anyone else in this place? Let me ask a second question with their heads still bowed. How many would just honestly say, I, I know Christ, I am a believer, but I want God to stir in me a greater appetite for his presence. I want to be satisfied more and more by his presence. How many would raise your hand with me and say that's the desire of my life? Would you sing this chorus with me, a beautiful chorus. We've not sung it before. It's real simple. But just take it on and make it your prayer as we worship.